page, the bottom of the third page, where we have uh, Roman numeral 5, the incarnation of Christ. The incarnation of Christ. We've already dealt with the fact that Jesus is an eternal being, without beginning, without end. We've seen that he pre-existed before he became incarnated in human flesh. And then last evening, we looked at what the scriptures teach concerning his absolute deity. He has the same divine nature as God the Father, with all the same attributes of deity that God the Father has. So now we want to take a look at the incarnation of Christ. And as you see there, we state that historically, some persons and groups have denied the fact that Christ became incarnated in human flesh. By contrast, the scriptures teach that the eternal pre-existent Christ became incarnated in human flesh at a period of time in history, and thus he, has, he had his own body and divine nature. Or, I'm sorry, human nature. He got his human body and his human nature through the process of incarnation. Now, we want to look at the biblical evidences for his incarnation. And the first one is this. Jesus Christ had human genealogies. In fact, there are two of them in the Gospels. The first one is in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And I'd point out to you that that genealogy presents Christ's legal genealogy. It's his legal genealogy, not his biological one. And it's, it's his legal genealogy through his legal father, Joseph, who was not his biological father. Joseph was his stepfather. He adopted Jesus to be his son. Now, in order for Jesus to be the Messiah, to be the king, to rule over God's kingdom, he must have the legal right to that throne. And so that genealogy indicates he has the legal right through his stepfather, Joseph, and therefore we have that genealogy given to us in Matthew chapter 1. It's not his biological genealogy, but his legal one, that indicates, and it goes right back to King David, which says he has the legal right to sit upon David's throne in the, in the future and rule the whole world on behalf of God. But then if you go to the top of the next page, there's a second genealogy of Christ given in the New Testament, and that's in Luke chapter 3, Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 28. And I point out to you, this presents his actual biological Genealogy. You may want to turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3 and verses 23 through 28. We read in verse 23, Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age. And then Luke put in basically a parenthesis statement. Being as was supposed the son of Joseph. He's saying that there were some people who mistakenly concluded that Jesus was actually the biological son of Joseph. But he wasn't. Joseph had adopted him. And so Joseph was a stepfather. So Luke puts in that footnote that Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being as was supposed. In other words, mistakenly by some people that he was the son of Joseph. But notice instead, if we leave that, that supposed statement out of there, Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, who was the son of Heli, the son of Heli. Now, the word son in the Bible uh, doesn't necessarily 
talk about just the direction or the, the relationship with your biological father, it's used for any male ancestor of yours. For example, if you went to the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, it's a genealogy about Jesus, the son of David. Well, David was, David was many ancestors back before Jesus was born. So there the, the word son is used in a broad sense. For any, you, if you're a biological descendant of any male ancestor going way back, back among the Jews, you could be called the son of one of those ancestors ages ago. And so when it says here that Jesus was the son of Heli, most scholars are convinced that Heli was the father of Mary, Jesus' mother. Heli was the father of Mary, Jesus' mother. And therefore, Jesus was a biological descendant of his grandfather, Heli. He was a biological descendant of his grandfather, Heli, through his mother, Mary. So that Heli was the, the father of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus. And so this is the biological genealogy of Jesus. And if you read on down through that whole genealogy, you'll see it goes right back to King David. It is a biological descendant of King David. Let me share with you something which makes this very significant to see this. A number of years ago, one of my former colleagues who was on the staff at Friends of Israel took a master's degree program in Semitic studies at a Jewish graduate school in the city of Philadelphia. One of the courses he took was a course of the Jewish view of the history of religion. He was the only student in the class. And his professor was an Orthodox Jewess who taught full-time at Hebrew University up in New, in New York City, but part-time at this Hebrew school in Philadelphia. So one day a week, she'd get on the train, New York, come all the way down to Philadelphia just to meet with him. On the day they were going to begin studying the history of Christianity from a Jewish perspective, she said, well, Mr. Barner, I suppose since you're a Christian, this is the day you could hardly wait to arrive. But she said, before we begin our study... I want to make something very clear to you. As an Orthodox Jewess, I'm absolutely convinced that Jesus is not the Messiah. I totally reject the idea that he is the true Messiah. Mr. Varner said to her, I can appreciate that, knowing your background, but would you mind, if before we begin our study, if I as a Christian tell you why I'm convinced he is the Messiah? She said, be my guest. He said, if Jesus is not the Messiah, there can never be the Messiah. She said, on what grounds do you say that? He said, you know your Tanakh, which is the Jewish word for the Old Testament. You know your Tanakh teaches very clearly the true Messiah must be a biological son of King David. She said, you're right. He said, in order for man to be accepted as a Messiah, he must be able to demonstrate he is a biological son of King David. She said, you're correct again. He said, the only way a Jewish man could demonstrate he's a biological son of King David is through a genealogy that traces his biological way right back to King David. She said, you're right again. He said, where are Israel's genealogical records? They don't exist. They were all destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD when they leveled Jerusalem and the second temple to the ground. Their genealogies down to the century of time were stored in that temple. He said, there's only one Jew whose genealogy has been preserved up to the present day, and that's Jesus. And his genealogy in Luke chapter 3 traces his biological descent back to King David. 
And so he said, if Jesus is not the Messiah, then there will never be a Messiah because no man will have a genealogy to demonstrate he's a descendant of King David. She was so stunned by that, she couldn't teach the course that day. She cut it off at that point, got on the train, went back to New York. When she got back the next, the next week, she wouldn't even discuss it with him. She knew he was right. And that really shook her as an Orthodox Jewess. That genealogy is very crucial. He's the only Jew who's had his genealogy preserved up to the present day. And it traces him biologically right back to King David. And thereby demonstrates he is the true Messiah, just as God foretold through the scriptures. So, notice, that's one evidence of his incarnation. To be a biological descendant of King David, he had to become incarnated in human flesh by virtue of a physical birth to his mother, who was a biological descendant of King David as well. And so those genealogies imply very clearly Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, became incarnated in human flesh during the course of world history, and he derived his humanity, his human nature, through his biological mother Mary. Second line of evidence for his incarnation, the witness of the Apostle John. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, referring to Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, which says he was absolute deity. But then verse 14 of John 1, John says, And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Now, he's saying here, the, this, this person who was absolute deity that he calls the Word, this eternal Word person, became something he was not before. He became flesh. The word flesh most times in the New Testament refers to man in contrast with God. Scriptures say God's a spirit. By contrast with God is a spirit, man is flesh. He's a human being. And so when John, writing inspired scripture, as the spirit of God was moving to say this about Jesus, he said, the word, who was God, absolute deity, became flesh. He became a literal human being with a literal human body. And so that's a testimony to the effect that he became incarnated. Now, that was important, too, because around the time that John was writing this, there was a heresy called Gnosticism that was floating around in the Middle East and tried to make an impact in the church. And it said that, that Jesus, he was not, he did not, the, the Christ did not literally become a human being in of himself. Some of them said he temporarily came upon a man already existing. The Christ temporarily came upon a man already existing by the name of Jesus. And just kind of occupied him until he could reveal some secret knowledge to mankind. And once he revealed that secret knowledge to mankind. He left the man Jesus and went back to heaven. And the man Jesus is the one who died on the cross, but it wasn't the eternal Christ that died on the cross. And so Gnosticism denied that the eternal Christ, Son of God, became a literal human being with a literal physical human body. And so John is, is knocking that in the head. In fact, he does it even more so in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1, uh, where John 
indicates that he and the other apostles actually heard Jesus teaching with their ears. They actually saw him physically with their eyes, and they actually touched his physical body. John is writing 1 John against Gnosticism. And so right at the outset, it makes it very clear. We apostles, we heard him teaching God's word with our ears. We saw him in his physical body with our eyes. And he wasn't just a phantom. And he wasn't somebody who came upon another human being. This is the literal Jesus Christ. And we actually touched his physical body with our hands. He's driving home the point he was incarnated in human flesh. Then again in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, John makes this statement. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, in other words, become incarnated, is from God. Any spirit that claims that Jesus became incarnated in human flesh is from God. By contrast, John points out, those who do not confess that he became incarnated in human flesh are not from God. So John's laid down a test, a test there of orthodoxy. If you say he did literally become incarnated in human flesh, the eternal Christ did, that's of God. But if you deny that the eternal Christ became incarnated in human flesh, you're not of God whatsoever. And that statement is totally not from God. It has to come from some other evil force denying the fact of his incarnation. Then number three, we have the witness of the Apostle Paul to the fact that Jesus became incarnated in human flesh. And because we have to cover a good bit of ground, I'm just going to give the reference. We won't have time to look all these up, but I'm going to tell you briefly what it says in each one of these places. First, at Colossians chapter 1, verse 22. Paul says, Christ has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Notice Paul is talking that Jesus had a fleshly body that literally experienced a physical death. Christ has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. So he said he had a fleshly body, and that body actually died a physical death. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. Colossians 2, verse 9. Paul said, In him, referring to Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells, notice, in bodily form. He said this was absolute deity, now dwelling in bodily form, a literal, physical human body. That in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. First Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, where Paul defines the true gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, Christ died for our sins. Deity doesn't die. Humanity does. What says he became a man there. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. So it had to be a physical body that was buried. And he rose again. His physical body was resurrected from the dead. Those are different ways that Paul testified that the eternal Christ became incarnated in human flesh. Then Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. 
Paul indicated that Jesus was obedient to the point of death, which again implies he had a physical body that could die, even death on a cross. You can't nail a phantom or a spirit to a cross. You have to have physical substance to nail to a cross. And so it's another way of Paul saying he had a literal physical body. He was incarnating in flesh. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, a crucifixion. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. He refers to Jesus as he who was revealed in the flesh. That Christ was revealed in the flesh. In other words, in a human body. In a human body. He was revealed in the flesh. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, Paul refers to the blood of Christ. It takes a physical body, that blood. He refers to the blood of Christ, and again he refers to the flesh of Christ, the flesh of Christ. Again, referring to the fact he was physical, he had a physical body that he inhabited with his deity through the Incarnation. So Paul gave these different kinds of witness to the effect he did become incarnated in a literal, physical human body. Then number four, we have the witness of the Apostle Peter. Witness of the Apostle Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, he declared that Christ had blood. He had blood. It was shed for us. He had blood. That again implies a physical body. And later, verse 21, he refers to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Which again is the idea of a physical body being brought back to life again. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Peter declared, Christ himself, Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. And he also indicates that he had wounds as a result. Wounds, which again implies a physical body that could be wounded. So he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, and he had wounds. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, where the apostle Peter is preaching to the crowd of Jews there on the day of Pentecost, the day that the church was, was born. And he, he said several things here that indicate Jesus had a physical body. In verse 22, he said that Jesus was a man. In fact, the Greek term here is actually for a male. He was a male human being. He had a male physical human body. That Jesus was a man. Verse 23 Jesus was nailed to a cross. Nailed to a cross. Verses 23 and 24, Jesus was put to death. He was put to death. And verse 24, he was resurrected from the dead. All these terms Peter used as he preached the truth about Jesus to the crowd of Jews there on the day of Pentecost indicate he had a literal physical body. He was incarnated 
in human flesh and lived here among human beings with that human body for 30-some years. Then number five, interestingly, the witness of Pilate. The witness of Pilate. When Jesus was on trial and Pilate kept trying to set him free and the religious leaders of Israel, the crowd that were there, wouldn't allow him to do it and kept crying out, you know, crucify him, crucify him. Matthew 27, verse 24, Pilate got a basin of water and washed his hands and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. Notice he called Jesus a man who had blood. I'm innocent of this man's blood. Then, after he had Jesus scourged, and he brings him out before the crowd, John 19, verse 5, he says, Behold the man. Behold the man. Latin, ecce homo. Ecce homo. By the way, if you've been to Jerusalem, there's a, a large Catholic cathedral built right over top of the pavement stone where Jesus stood on trial before Pilate. And they've called that church Ecce Homo. Behold the man. Behold the man. And you can go down uh, underneath that church and you can actually walk on the pavement stones where Jesus stood on trial before Pilate. They're Ecce Homo Church there in Jerusalem. Then there's the witness of the writer of the book of Hebrews. Turn, if you would, please. We, we definitely want to take a look at this one. Hebrews chapter 2. And we'll look specifically at verses 14 and 17. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 17. The writer says, For as much then as the children are partakers, notice, of flesh and blood. The children are physical human beings with physical human bodies. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. He also partook of flesh and blood, a physical body. Here's why. For this purpose, that through death, you need a physical body to have death, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Verse 17. Wherefore, in all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. What he's saying is, since the ones he was coming to save were physical human beings, he allowed himself to be made just like them, physical human beings. So that he could go to the cross and die in their place as their substitute. In order for his sacrificial death to be effective for them, he had to become one of them, was the idea, in order to be their substitute and die in their place. A physical death, receiving God's wrath and judgment upon himself and his physical body, in order to save human beings who are flesh in, in physical bodies. And he says, uh, look at verse 16. Verily or truly, he did not take on him the nature of angels. He didn't come to provide salvation for fallen angels. But instead, he took on him the seed of Abraham. In other words, the biological sons of Abraham were physical human beings. 
And so he allowed himself and his humanity to become a Jew, a biological descendant of Abraham. In fact, if you look again at the genealogy of Matthew 1, it says Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, biological descendant of Abraham, and the son of David, a biological descendant of David. So the writer of Hebrews, again, is making it very clear, he became incarnated in human flesh so that he could go to the cross pay in full the penalty of the sins of all human beings as their substitute. Then number seven, the top of the next page, we have the announcement to Mary by the angel Gabriel, a testimony to Christ's incarnation. Number seven, the announcement to Mary, Luke chapter one, verses 26 to 38. In verse 31 of Luke one, Gabriel said to Mary, you will conceive in your womb it's going to be literal, physical conception of a human being in your womb. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son. In other words, you're going to give birth to a son. It says, you're not giving birth to a phantom or just a spirit. You're giving birth to a literal, physical human being. It's going to be the result of the Spirit of God coming upon you, causing supernatural conception in your womb. Then, in verse 32, Gabriel refers to David as the ancestor of this son to whom Mary will give birth, which says this son she give birth is a biological descendant of King David. David would be his ancestor because Gabriel said he'll sit upon the throne of his father or his ancestor, David. And then, verse 35, Gabriel mentioned that Christ would be Mary's offspring, her offspring. In other words, a child that she gave birth from within her own body to him as a human being. He would be Mary's offspring. And then closely related to that, number eight, you have the witness of Elizabeth, a relative of Mary's. When Mary went over to, to visit with uh, her cousin Elizabeth, Elizabeth said some interesting things in Luke 1, verses 41 to 45, under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Under the influence of the Holy Spirit. In verse 42, she called Christ the fruit of Mary's womb. The fruit of Mary's womb. Implied again that the fruit that was developing in Mary's womb was going to be a human being. And then in verse 43, she called Mary the mother of my Lord, saying that Jesus had a mother. Well, you, the way you have a mother is by having that woman give birth to you. And so Elizabeth called Mary the mother of my Lord, saying, this one to whom you're going to give birth, you are the mother of this one to whom you're going to give birth. Implying again, Mary was giving birth to a literal, physical human being. Number nine, the records of Jesus' birth and presentation in the temple. The record of Jesus' birth and presentation in the temple. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, where the angel came to Joseph, who was betrothed to Mary, to explain Mary's pregnancy to Joseph. Joseph knew he wasn't the father of this child in Mary's womb. And obviously, initially thought, as any man would, she's been involved with another man illicitly. That's how she's pregnant with this child. And God sent an angel 
to Joseph to explain the situation so that he'd still be willing to have Mary as his wife. And what the angel said to him in verse 18, that uh, she's going to give birth. It says the, the birth of Jesus Christ, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. That's how the record starts out. Saying that Jesus experienced a literal physical birth. The birth of Jesus Christ is as follows. When as his mother Mary, notice again, this one being born, Mary is the mother. She is going to deliver a literal child in the world. She's the mother. When as his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, she was found to be with child. She was literally pregnant with a physical, developing human being inside her womb. She was found to be with child. And then finally, verse 25, Mary gave birth to a son. Mary gave birth to a son. All these things again are implying incarnation of Jesus Christ. He was conceived and born with a literal physical body as a human being. Then Matthew chapter 2, verses 1, 2, 4, and 11. Verse 1, uh, we have a statement of the fact that Jesus was born. Jesus was born. Verse 4, Herod asked, where is the Christ, the Messiah, to be born? Remember these strange magi, we all call them wise men, showed up unannounced. They're, they traveled a long journey, maybe from over uh, around Persia, maybe where Iran is today, it could be. And they show up and they come to Herod and say, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And Herod, who had a built-in phobia that somebody was out there always lurking in the shadows, ready to assassinate him, to take the throne away from him. And when he heard these strange people from the east coming in and say, where is he that's born king of the Jews? He said, what do you mean king of the Jews? I'm supposed to be the king of the Jews. Rome appointed me to be that back in 37 B.C. And so right away, he must have talked, you know, what about this? What do you believe about him? He must have come up, well, we believe he's going to be the future Messiah. So he calls in the Jewish scholars and says, well, where was the Messiah to be born? Notice, he said, he's going to be born. Right away, they went to Micah 5.2 at Bethlehem. And uh, then, as you know, he schemed then to have every boy baby, two years of age and under, at Bethlehem put to death. That was going to be Satan's way of eliminating uh, the Messiah before he could be here and get rid of Satan and rule the world on behalf of God. Well, he said to them, go find out where the child is. And then come and tell me where he is so I can come and worship him also. Big fat liar. <laughs> he was using that deception. He only wanted to give them information so he could eliminate him. And as they leave, God sent a warning to those wise men. Don't go back to Herod. And they came to Bethlehem and notice what we're told there. Verse 11. They found the child with his mother. They found the child with his mother. And they worshipped him. He was a child. He was literally born as a human being of his mother, Mary. Then, Luke chapter 2, verses 6, 7, 11, 21, and 23. In verses 6 and 7, 
Luke records that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. Gave birth to her firstborn son. There's birth again as a son. By the way, notice firstborn son. What's that imply? She was going to give birth to other sons later on, which is completely contrary to what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. She gave birth to her firstborn son. Verse 11. A savior, the angel said, you know, unto you is born this day in the city of Bethlehem a savior. A savior is born who is Christ the Lord. The angels were testifying about his incarnation. He was born in Bethlehem to be a savior for the people of the world. Verse 21 at the proper time, according to the Mosaic Law, Jewish couples were required to take the firstborn son up to the temple at Jerusalem and present him to the Lord. God required that of Jewish couples with their firstborn son. And so Joseph and Mary took Jesus up to the temple and he was circumcised. You can't circumcise a spirit. You have to have a fleshly body. He was circumcised. That says he was incarnated in human flesh. And again it's stated that he was conceived in her womb. And verse 23 said, they did this to meet God's requirement that the firstborn male that opens the womb is to be dedicated to the Lord. So this is saying that Jesus was the firstborn male that opened Mary's womb. You know, we can read through these statements of the Bible about him, but we really don't take into consideration the implications of these words. Conceived in the womb, born in the womb, circumcised, all the rest. All these are saying incarnation of this eternal being in human flesh with a literal, physical human body. Now look at capital letter B, and this is something that you know, for years as I read about Jesus, it never dawned on me until years later the permanency of Christ's incarnation. Think of the significance of this, the permanency of Christ's incarnation. There have been some people over the years who have said that Christ was incarnate only long enough to accomplish redemption. But once he accomplished redemption, he ceased being incarnated in human flesh after he finished his redemptive work. Some have said that. It was only a temporary incarnation of Jesus Christ in humanity, just to give him time to provide redemption, forgiveness of sins for human beings. And once he did that, then he ceased being incarnated in human flesh. We would point out that the scriptures indicate that the change Christ experienced in the incarnation was permanent, not temporary. Think of the implications of that. When apparently in eternity past, when the Godhead worked out this whole situation, they knew that man was going to rebel, become sinful, and that God would love his human creatures so much, he'd provide a way of salvation. It was figured out the only way that could happen is for one of those who are the Godhead to come to the earth, become incarnated in human flesh and die as a substitute for human beings, in that decision, whoever would volunteer to do that was going to have to recognize this was not going to be a temporary incarnation. 
Once you incarnate that human flesh, you're incarnated in it forever. From that point on throughout eternity. So this was not going to be a temporary change for Jesus. It was going to be a permanent change for him. Incarnated in human flesh. So the scriptures again indicate that the change Christ experienced in the incarnation was permanent, not temporary. Once Christ became a man, he became a man forever. A man forever. Now, what are the evidences for this? Well, number one, Christ still had a human body after his resurrection. It was a glorified body that cannot die. So that he still had a human body after his resurrection. And it was a literal, physical human body. Same body that died on the cross is now resurrected. Literal, physical body. Had some changes with it, but it's still a literal, literal physical body. And a clear indication of that is in Matthew 24, verses 36 to 39. Matthew 24, verses 36 to 39. Sometime after Jesus died, his apostles were together in a room. Jesus wasn't there. All of a sudden, without a window or door opening, boom, he appears right in their midst. They were startled. They thought they were seeing a spirit. A lot of people say it's a ghost. And Jesus said to them, Handle me. Touch my body. And see, it is I with a physical body. A spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. Notice he's saying, my resurrection body is still a physical body. A physical human body consists of flesh and bones. And if you don't believe it, touch me and see. Touch it. I've got a literal physical human body. And then to prove it more, he said, do you have some food here? And he literally ate food before those people. Again, demonstrate this was a literal physical human body. It was a resurrection body. It was there. Matthew 28, verse 9. When some people, some of his believers, saw him in resurrection form, they fell down and they grabbed hold of his feet. He had literal, physical feet in his resurrection body that they could hold on to uh, while there. So he had hands, he had feet. He, He said, you know, look at the wounds in my body. Look at my hands and my feet. The wounds of my crucifixion are there. So he had hands and feet after resurrection, touch me and see. He had flesh and bones in that resurrection body. And he still has that today. Remember what Dr. Wickham's pointing out in the future? They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. In the future. They'll look to him who was pierced. The idea is in the future, he still carries with him the wounds of his crucifixion in his glorified resurrection body but it's still a literal, physical body. Now, this is the second line of evidence. His incarnation was permanent. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 11, he still had his human name at his ascension. Still had his human name at his ascension. That when Jesus left the apostles for the Mount of Olives and ascended to heaven, two angels appeared, and they said to them, this same Jesus... Notice his human name. Remember what the, the angel in, in Matthew said to, uh, to Joseph? You shall call his name Jesus. That was his human name, which meant Savior, Yeshua, or 
or English translation, Joshua, which means Savior, for he shall save his people from their sins. So that the two angels, when Jesus ascended, they referred to him by his human name. This same Jesus, whom you've seen ascend to heaven, will so come in like manner in the future. The idea is as a second coming. He still had his human name after his resurrection from the dead and after his crucifixion and going up to ascension. But then look at this one, and I want you to turn to this one, please. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. The Apostle Paul is writing this several years after Jesus ascended to heaven. Paul says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. Notice, the man, Christ Jesus. The man, Christ Jesus. By the way, there's no mediatrix. Nobody else is a mediator between God and man. Only Jesus. Paul's, this authoritative apostle Paul is saying that there's one God and one mediator. Not more than one. Not Mary as a mediatrix. Only her son. There's one God, one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. Paul's saying... As he's up in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, he's still a man. He's still a human being in literal flesh and bone, body, resurrection body. He's still a man. Then he will still be the son of man. We noted in one of our earlier studies that the word son of God says you are absolute deity, same nature as, as God. Son of man says you are a biological descendant of mankind. You're a human being. And we're told in more than one passage that he will still be son of man at his second coming. In uh, Matthew 24, verse 30, after Jesus had talked about the great tribulation and then the cosmic disturbances that take place immediately after the end of the great tribulation, then his sign appearing in the heavens and then the tribes of the earth mourning Finally, we're told in verse 30, they see Jesus coming out of heaven as the Son of Man on the clouds of heaven. It says he's still a biological descendant of mankind. Of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of David at his second coming, when he comes down to rule the earth on behalf of God. Then number five, in Revelation 22, verse 16, the Apostle John, by revelation of the Holy Spirit, indicates that Jesus, even in that future eternal state, is still the root and offspring of David while he's in his glorified state. Even in his glorified resurrection body, even in the eternity future, he will still be the root and offspring of David. Literal, biological descendant of King David. With a literal physical body with which he was born in the world but is now glorified as a result of his resurrection. So all these things in an overwhelming way are clearly implying he did become incarnated in human flesh and tabernacled in the midst of human beings with a physical human body for 30 some years here upon planet earth. Now, Roman numeral 6 in our outline 
the humanity of Jesus. We can talk about us having a physical body, but the humanity of Jesus. We point out here that some say that Christ became incarnated in a human body, but did not become a total human being. Yes, he had a physical human body, but he didn't become a total human being with a complete human nature. Almost like he's only partially human, physically human, but not with a human nature. Well, the Bible gives us evidence that Christ was a total human being with a complete human nature. Not just a physical body, but a complete human nature. And so, capillary, one line of evidence is this, that Christ experienced normal human development. He experienced normal human development. Luke chapter 2, verses 40 and 52. And these passages indicate that as a child, he experienced physical growth and also increased in wisdom as a human being. He experienced physical growth and also increased in wisdom. Now notice, deity doesn't need to increase in wisdom because deity is omniscient, knows everything there is to know. And so while he was here incarnated in human flesh, in the realm of his deity, he was omniscient. But he allowed his humanity to develop like a normal human being with physical growth and increasing in wisdom. So he allowed his humanity to develop like a regular human being. Kepler B. As a child, Christ was in subjection to his parents. He was in subjection to his parents. Luke chapter 2, verse 51. Now, again, think of the incredible implications of this. Here he is, an eternal being, without beginning, without end. He's the one who created the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything that's in them. He's the one who created human beings. But here he is, that creator. In the realm of his humanity, as a child, and even though he's a sovereign creator of the universe, he allows himself in the realm of his humanity to be totally subject to the authority of two human beings, his stepfather and his biological mother. Interesting. So that, like other children, would be subject to the authority of parents. He allowed his humanity to be subject to his parents. It says that there was an attitude there. He had more than just a physical body, he had a human nature. And he allowed it to function like the human nature of other children to be subject to his human parents while he was growing up in the realm of his humanity. Kepler C. Christ experienced human emotions while he was here. Experienced human emotions while he was here. John chapter 11, verse 33. A dear friend of his, Lazarus, had died a physical death. And when Jesus went to where he was buried and he met uh, the sisters of Lazarus, Martha and Mary, who were very dear friends of his, and saw their grief and the grief of the other Jews that were there over Lazarus' death, we're told in verse 33 that he was deeply moved. He was deeply moved emotionally. 
seeing the tremendous grief this caused human beings with the death of their friend, Lazarus. Now, interestingly, the Greek word that our English translations say deeply moved is an expression of anger. In fact, literally, it means he snorted. It was a word used for a horse that would snort with anger when it was confronted by an enemy. The Bible says death is the enemy of man. And when Jesus saw what Lazarus' death, this enemy of man, the, the tremendous sorrow and grief it caused for Lazarus' sisters and, and his friends, he, in essence, snorted in anger at death. Here we read in Hebrews 2. He became incarnated human flesh to deal effectively with the one who can bring death, Satan. And we're told the last enemy he's going to put down in the future is death. Death is an enemy. And he was angry at the grief and sorrow Lazarus' death was causing for his sisters and for his friends. Then he also said there that he was troubled. He was troubled. And the Greek word translated troubled refers to emotional disturbance. In his humanity, when he came to this place where mourning was going on over the death of a friend and a family member, he experienced emotional disturbance inside, like any other human being would experience. Then, John chapter 11, verse 35, in that same situation of Lazarus' death where people were mourning, he experienced grief. That's the, that's the shortest verse in the whole Bible. It says he wept. He wept. He experienced grief over the death of his friend to the point that he literally shed tears. He experienced that like other human beings would be. Number three, Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. When Jesus looked out over a multitude of people, they were like sheep without a shepherd. We're told he had compassion for them. And the word translated compassion has the idea of pity. He experienced the human emotion of pity for people that he saw were in tremendous need. Number four, Luke 22, verse 44. When he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he went to the cross, knowing full well what was going to happen between him and the Father that next day, we're told he experienced great agony, great agony inside. Have you ever considered this? When Jesus was born, or what we call that first Christmas night, and the angels came and said, we bring you great news, of, you know, great tidings. Unto you is born in the city of Bethlehem this day, a Savior is Christ the Lord. Peace on earth, you know, goodwill between men. While people were rejoicing down here upon planet earth over this happy event, what do you think God the Father was experiencing up in heaven when his son was born that night in human form? Knowing full well what that birth was going to lead to 30-some years down the road. 
that when his son would go to that cross as our substitute, and God the Father was going to have to pour out all his wrathful judgment that you and I and all human beings deserved upon his own son. And for the first time in their existence, there was a break in fellowship between him and his son. They never had a break in fellowship between each other up to that point. And this is why Jesus cried out, My God! My God! Why hast thou forsaken me? He knew, Jesus knew, what he was going to experience that next day. Yes, tremendous physical agony. But there were thousands of men who were crucified on crosses, and so that wasn't going to be different from what they experienced. But the worst part was going to be the break of fellowship between him and his father that neither of them had experienced before. Plus, all of God's wrath for your sins, my sins, the sins of all human race being poured out upon him by his father on the cross. No wonder he went through intense, intense agony that night before he went to the cross. And how do you think the father was feeling from that? That's the only way that salvation could be provided for you and for me. And Jesus paid a terrible price, but so did God the Father pay a terrible price. They're working together in agreement to do this for your sake and for my sake as well. Let me just quickly point out capital letter D and capital letter E. Capital letter D, Christ experienced human limitations. We're, we're giving evidence here that he not only had a physical body, but he took upon himself a human nature through his incarnation. He experienced human limitations. John 19, verse 28, we're told that when he knew that the work he was to do on the cross had been completed, he said, I thirst. He experienced human thirst as you and I experience human thirst. Matthew 4, verse 2. He'd been out in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights without any food intake whatsoever. I mean, no food for well over a month. And we're told he was hungry. He experienced physical hunger like a normal human being. And Mark 11:12 talks about another situation in which he experienced hunger. Physical hunger for food, as you and I would. Luke chapter 8, verse 23. He and the disciples started to row across the Sea of Galilee one night. He was fatigued. He was tired. He fell asleep at the bottom of the boat. He experienced physical fatigue or tiredness like other human beings. And John chapter 4, verse 6. When he came to Jacob's well where the Samaritan woman was, we're told that he was weary, he was tired, he was fatigued from the journey that he'd been walking, you know, from one location to where that Jacob's well was near, near Samaria. Here's an intriguing one. Matthew 24, verse 36, where it says, No man knows the day or hour of his second coming. Only the Father knows that. But then, Mark records further what Jesus said. Mark 13, verse 33. We didn't give you that reference here, but Mark 13, verse 33, he says, 
No man knows the day or hour of his coming. Not even the Son knows the day or hour of his second coming. Now he's saying that again in the realm of his humanity. Because the realm of his deity is omniscient. And if you're omniscient, you know everything. Therefore, in the realm of his, of his deity, he would know the day or the hour. But he's saying this in the realm of his humanity. That as the son, basically the son of man, that's what he's going to be at his second coming, according to Matthew 24, 30, that when he comes as son of man, he doesn't know the exact day or the exact hour when he's going to come as the son of man at his second coming. I take it he's going to wait until the father says, go. This is the time. This is the day. This is the hour. And then he goes. And finally, Kepler E, Christ had a human soul and spirit. Christ had a human soul and spirit. Uh, John chapter 12, verse 27, just one example of uh, what he said about the soul. John chapter 12 and verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. Now is my soul troubled. Indicate he had a human soul that could experience emotional disturbance. He had a human soul that could experience emotional disturbance. And we give you some other references where he referred to his soul. Then what about his spirit, his human spirit? Well, we give you several references here, but look, if you would, please, at, uh, again, at John chapter 11. And the reference there, I think you have the misprint there. It should be verse 33, John 11, verse 33. We're here in the Gospel of John. So just back one chapter, John chapter 11, verse 33. A situation again where he's there, where Lazarus had died, has been buried in a tomb. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, Mary weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Again, feeling emotional disturbance of some kind in his spirit. So all these things indicate very clearly that when Jesus came into the world, he became incarnated fully in human flesh with a literal, physical human body, which he still has up in heaven, but now glorified resurrection body. But he also took upon himself a complete human nature that could experience some of the limitations that we as human beings experience totally in the realm of his humanity could experience some of the emotions that we feel as human beings, again, totally in the realm of his humanity. So in other words, he became a complete human being with a physical body and a physical human nature with all the same attributes that you and I have as human beings. Now, Lord willing, tomorrow morning, in light of this, we've, we've seen overwhelming evidence for his absolute deity. We've seen overwhelming evidence for his humanity. Next thing we have to look at, and this Lord Willow will begin with during my session tomorrow morning, is how do these two complete natures inside one person relate to each other? Here's a complete divine nature with all the attributes of deity, 
It's a complete human nature with all the attributes of humanity. How do they relate to each other? He's one person with two complete natures. How do they integrate? What's the relationship between them? And as you see in the outline, we use a technical term here. We're going to start out with a discussion of the hypostatic union of Christ. And Lord willing, we'll, we'll explain to you what that word hypostatic means tomorrow morning. And when you hear the meaning of it, you'll, you'll begin to get the picture. And then we're going to talk about what the scriptures reveal about how these two complete natures inside this one person that we call Jesus Christ could coexist together and could relate to each other inside this one person. Again, these are great mysteries to us. And one of the reasons is, once he became incarnated in human flesh, he became a kind of person that has never been in the past exactly like it or ever will be again as another person. He became a God-man. God the Father is absolute deity, but he didn't become incarnated in human flesh, so God the Father is not a God-man. The Holy Spirit is absolute deity, but the Holy Spirit didn't become incarnated in human flesh, so the Holy Spirit is not a God-man. But Jesus, as an eternally divine being, becoming a human being, thereby became a God-man. And nobody else before him was ever that. There will never be another person after him that is that. But he will always be that, a God-man, a God-man. Father, again we're dealing with some very deep mysteries concerning the person of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. But we take your scriptures for what they say, and they make it very clear. He was an eternal being who existed before his incarnation with a complete divine nature of all the attributes of deity. But Lord, when he became a, a human being through incarnation, he took to himself another whole nature he never had before, a complete human nature and a complete physical body. And so now he's something unique, the likes of which never been in the past, ever will be again. We pray that these things again will impress us with who he is. And what change this brought to him in being willing to come to planet Earth, to take upon himself flesh and blood like we have, so that he could go to the cross and once for all forevermore pay in full the penalty of the sins of each and every human being has ever lived since the fall of man so that we, through trust in him and him alone, could have full forgiveness of sins and your gift of eternal life. Lord, cause us to have a whole sense of awe and reverence for who he is and what he's done that will change our lives and that we'll never forget for as long as we live. We pray that you do this in his blessed name. Amen.